Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English Study Group, and we're studying in Volume 2, Chapters 21 through 30. I'm going to be starting with meditation and just guiding you guys in a short little meditation to help prepare the mind for the class. Then we'll go through and have a student read, or I will read the individual chapters, and then I'll share teachings on each individual chapter before I open up to any questions that you guys might have on each individual chapter. I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to join for meditation. If you're in a place where you're maybe sitting, lying, or standing, these are the three positions that probably work out well for online learning. You'd like to just make your lower body and the hands and arms nice and comfortable. And then the upper body should be nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. Breathing in. in out. I'm going to ease this into meditation with some chanting, and then I'll be back with some light guidance just to help you get further into meditation. Sa 
Once you have the breath established, fixate the mind on the sound of the breath. Anytime the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought, observe it, analyze it, or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out.
We'll go ahead and start with our class by reading each individual chapter, and then I'll share teachings on the chapter once we've actually read it. If you're interested in reading and you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand and let me know that you would like to read a chapter. And then those of you guys that are in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can ask questions as we go by putting those into the comment section. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Is there anyone in Zoom who would like to read a chapter? Okay. Looks like Kaudun, you'd like to go ahead and read the first chapter? Seeing non-self with correctness wisdom. Monks, form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perce perception is impermanent. Volitional formation. Choices, decisions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is discontentness. What is discontentness is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Just this is not mine. This is I am not. 
this is not myself. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, choices, decisions, and consciousness, and is liberated from the stains by non-clinging. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attends Nibbana enlightenment. One understands, destroyed is burst. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. All right. Thank you, Kaudon. I think we might have skipped a couple of sentences there, but it's okay. I'll go through and teach this chapter piece by piece. Thank you for reading. Here, the Buddha is starting off by saying that the five aggregates are impermanent. Form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is what determines what a living being is. If a being has physical form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, this is a living being. So a human being has physical form. There's a physical body, physical structures here. There are certain feelings that are in the mind. There are certain perceptions. Perceptions is how you view the world, your views and opinions of the world. Then there's volitional formations. These are choices and decisions. And consciousness, this is the mind itself. So a human being has all five of these things, and you can independently verify this, that yes, the Buddha is indeed describing what a human being is. But this also describes animals as well, because These are living beings. They have form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is why the computer or the electronic device that you're using right now is not a living being. It has physical form, but it doesn't have feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. It can't have certain feelings arise. It doesn't have certain perceptions of how the world is viewed and certain opinions and beliefs about the world. It doesn't make choices and decisions independently of a human actually doing the work. And there's not a consciousness. That's why it doesn't have the feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, because there's no mind, there's no consciousness. So this is how you determine what a living being is, is by a being having the five aggregates. These are also sometimes referred to as elements or collections. Then the Buddha goes into saying, what is impermanent is discontentedness. What he's talking about here is that the unenlightened mind craves permanence. It wants things to be permanent. So when the unenlightened mind experiences impermanence, then it experiences discontentedness because it hasn't been trained to understand impermanence. It craves, it has this longing, yearning for permanence. It wants things to be a certain way. It wants the objects of its affection. And when it gets the objects of its affection, it gets pleasant feelings. Those are like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. 
But then if it doesn't get the objects of its affection and what it wants, it will get painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, these and others. And then typically what we do is we push away those uncomfortable feelings and we push away a person or a situation. This is called aversion. In the unenlightened state, when the mind is experiencing these painful feelings, it doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So therefore, when it experiences these painful feelings, it attributes it to this person or to the situation, and it tries to push that away, thinking that that's going to solve the problem. So what is impermanent, as the unenlightened mind is experiencing impermanence, it will experience these discontent feelings. What is discontentedness is non-self. What the Buddha is explaining is that when you're experiencing discontentedness, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, this is not you. It's not who you are. So when you experience frustration or irritation, annoyance or other discontent feelings, this is not you. And it's really helpful to separate this so that you can see that the feelings are one thing And then this physical body and this mind is another thing. And none of these things are you. Because oftentimes what we might say is, I am mad, or I am angry, or I am upset. But there is no I here in order to be upset. So instead, the mind is experiencing sadness, or the mind is experiencing anger, or the mind is experiencing irritation. But I can't be upset or I can't be frustrated because there is no I here. It's the mind that is experiencing this. And none of this stuff is the self. It's not who you are. And by separating it out like that, then you can understand that you can eliminate this because it's just a feeling. It's just an impermanent feeling. And you can eliminate these discontent feelings, getting to the enlightened mind where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. So seeing that these feelings of discontentedness are not the self, they are not you. Now you can look at this more clearly and learn how to train the mind so that it no longer experiences these discontent feelings. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. This is where the Buddha is explaining that these five aggregates are not the self. This discontentedness is not the self. None of this is the self. The self does not exist. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. Oftentimes what the unenlightened mind does is it holds on and it clings to certain pleasant experiences in the past or certain painful experiences in the past. And now, because the mind is clinging to these pleasant experiences, longing and yearning for those to happen when they're not happening now, now the mind experiences discontentedness in the present moment. It might be sad or angry or frustrated because it's no longer experiencing those pleasant experiences from the past. Or you might have painful feelings from the past, some painful experience or situation that occurred. And now when the mind is thinking about the past, it now experiences painful feelings in the present moment. So by letting go and no longer clinging to the past, you can gain peacefulness and joy in the present moment. 
And then the Buddha says the same thing about the future as well. As long as the mind is longing and yearning for certain pleasant experiences in the future, or maybe being scared or fearful of painful things that may happen in the future, then you can't experience this liberation and freedom from strong feelings in the present moment because the mind is longing and yearning for something in the future and clinging to that. So when one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. So this is where the mind is causing itself discontentedness. When there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's longing and yearning and clinging and holding on to the past or the future. It can experience the peacefulness and joy in the present moment. But when you let go of the past and you let go of the future, then in the present moment, the mind can be firmly rooted right here in the present moment, having eliminated craving. And then the mind can be peaceful and joyful in the present moment. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So when the mind is no longer having craving, this longing and yearning, chasing after the objects of its affection, it becomes free of these strong feelings that the Buddha is describing. The strong feelings are the discontentedness. It no longer holds on to these five aggregates, thinking that this is who you are. And when the mind is no longer clinging to these five aggregates, the mind then gets to the point where it's liberated from the taints. The taints are the pollution of mind, the fetters. The Buddha describes 10 individual fetters and pollutions that need to be understood and they need to be eliminated and eradicated from the mind. And this is what ultimately moves the mind to the enlightened mental state. By eliminating each of these 10 individual fetters and clearing out the pollution of mind, then the mind can be liberated from these strong feelings. And now the Buddha goes into a description of enlightenment. He says, being liberated, so the mind being free of these strong feelings, the mind is steady. Because as long as those strong feelings are in there, the mind's going to be going up and down and up and down. So getting rid of those pollutions or the taints or the fetters, the mind is now free from those strong feelings and the mind is now steady. Being steady, the mind is content. This is being fulfilled, inwardly fulfilled. Because oftentimes what the unenlightened mind does is it thinks the grass is always greener on the other side and it always wants what it doesn't have. So the mind is longing and yearning for something that it doesn't have. So therefore it can't be content in the present moment. But when you let go of the craving and you let go of all these pollutions and train the mind to uproot those and you get liberated, then the mind will be content. Being content, one is not agitated. So there's not this agitation in the mind, this irritation, this annoyance. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana or enlightenment. So this is the Buddha's description of what it's like to experience enlightenment. I describe this as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And here the Buddha is providing his description. Once the mind gets to enlightenment, not only are you experiencing that peacefulness, that joy, that liberation of mind that is enlightenment, but now you've also eliminated the cycle of rebirth. So you'll know that the mind is enlightened because you'll go one year, two years, three years without experiencing any discontent feelings. And at the same time, having trained the mind to eliminate discontentedness, you'll also eliminate the cycle of rebirth where you're not reborn over and over and over and over again. 
because an individual is going to keep being reborn over and over into new existences because you haven't yet learned what it is you need to learn in this existence and previous existences. The mind is still holding on. It's still clinging. It's still craving. It's still longing and yearning. It still wants something. It still expects something. So by getting to this enlightened mental state, not only do you experience this liberation or freedom from strong feelings, steadiness, contentedness, being unagitated, but the mind then understands that you've destroyed birth. There's no longer going to be birth. So therefore, there's no longer going to be death. You're not trapped in this constant cycle of rebirth because you've lived the holy life. You've lived life through training the mind and getting to this enlightened mental state. What had to be done has been done. You've done the work. You've independently gone on this journey with the guidance of teachers and the resources to help you to actually train the mind and get to this point where the mind is now liberated from discontentedness. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence, meaning you're no longer experience this constant rebirth. There's no longer going to be existence because you've gotten to enlightenment. You fully train the mind. There's no more craving. There's no more discontentedness. The mind's not holding on to anything. You fully cultivated the wisdom of how to get to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and we'll be able to see those and be sure your questions get answered. All right, I'm not seeing any questions in either Facebook or YouTube. I don't see any in Zoom either. So we'll just go ahead and move on to chapter 22. Is there someone who would like to read chapter 22? All right, go ahead, Kaldun. Uh, is it okay for me to read every time? Sure, you can read them all if you like. One who is engaged in unliberated, one who is disengaged is liberated. Monks, one who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Consciousness Monks, while standing, while standing, might stand engaged with form, based upon form, establish upon form, with a sparkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with feeling, based upon feeling, establish upon feeling, with a sparkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness while standing might stand engaged with perception based upon perception established upon perception with a sparkling of excitement it might come to growth increase and expansion or consciousness while standing might stand engaged with volitional formations choices decisions based upon volitional formations established upon volitional formations with a sparkling of excitement it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Monks, though, someone might say, separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness, its passing away and rebirth. Its growth, increase, and expansion is impossible. Monks, if a monk has abundant desire for the form aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abundant desire for the feeling aggregate, for the perception aggregate, for the volitional formations, choices, decisions aggregate, 
for the consciousness aggregate with the abandonment of craving the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nirvana, enlightenment. One understands, destroy, disperse. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. All right. Thank you, sir. So here the Buddha is using the word engaged rather than craving desire attachment. If the mind is engaged, it's unliberated. But if it's disengaged, it's liberated. So if the mind is holding on, it's going to be unliberated. So he's describing that, that if one is holding on to the form aggregate, the feeling aggregate, the perception aggregate, the volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, or the consciousness itself, then the mind is unliberated because it's engaged, it's clinging, it's holding on. And then he goes in and he says, if there's someone who might say that separated from the five aggregates, they will make known the passing away and rebirth, its growth, increase and expansion. He's saying that's impossible, meaning you can't just separate yourself from these five aggregates. Instead, what he says is you need to abandon desire. That's how you actually get to the point where the mind is liberated. It's not possible to just separate yourself from these things. The mind needs to get to the point where the craving, desire, attachment, the longing and yearning has been eliminated, where it's no longer holding on to these aggregates. And that's where he says the basis is cut off. There's no more support for establishing consciousness, meaning there can't be any more rebirth if you've eliminated the holding on to these five aggregates. As long as the mind is holding on to these five aggregates, then there can be continuous rebirth. But if you've cut it off and you're no longer craving for the holding on or the clinging of these aggregates, then the mind can experience liberation in this enlightenment. And then he goes on to explain what enlightenment is, the same as the previous chapter. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here on Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. So we can go ahead and move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 23. Right and wrong refugee. They go to many a refugee to mountains and forests, to, park and tree, to parks and tree shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refugee, not the supreme refugee. That's not the refugee having gone to it. You gain release from all discontentness and stress, but when having gone to the Buddha, the teachings and the community for refugee, you see with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths. Stress, the cause of distress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refugee. That's the supreme refugee. That's the refugee having gone to which you gain release from all discontentness and stress. All right, thank you. So here the Buddha is describing how when people experience, you know, fear or they 
they have a threat of danger, they might run to the mountains or the forest or to parks or tree shines thinking that this is going to provide protection. That's what a refuge is. If there's a refuge, then it's providing you protection. And the Buddha is saying that the mountains, the forests, the parks, the tree shines can't provide you safety from the fear that's in the mind. He's saying that's not the secure refuge because those places, just moving the mind to those places, you're not going to be able to eliminate the release of all discontentedness and stress. Instead, what eliminates and protects the mind, provides this refuge, is when you have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. Because when you have confidence in the Buddha that he was fully enlightened, a perfectly enlightened Buddha, you have access to his teachings and you build confidence in those and you're part of a community. Now you are having the three jewels or the triple gem or the triple jewels where you now have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community. This is how you remove doubt is by investigating the teachings of the Buddha and get to the point where you've seen so much progress in the condition of the mind that you now have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community. And ultimately you'll gain confidence in your teacher and you'll gain confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment because you will have seen the progress that you've made on the past and you'll see the improvement to the condition of the mind. And having gone to the Buddha, the teachings, the community, having confidence in them, what you would be doing is studying the teachings and getting more and more wise about what's leading to this discontentedness so that then you can eliminate it. And this is where the Buddha is guiding you to the Four Noble Truths because it's the Four Noble Truths which is the very beginning of the path. This is where you establish right view. Without understanding and deeply practicing the Four Noble Truths, you wouldn't be able to make your way towards enlightenment because you don't yet know what is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way forward to completely eliminate discontentedness. Here, the word stress is being used instead of discontentedness and the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and then the way forward is the Eightfold Path. That's the core central teaching that everything else plugs into. So anybody who's making an effort and has a sincere goal of getting to enlightenment through the teachings of the Buddha, we need to understand this core central teaching of the Eightfold Path. And that's where you learn how to train the mind and go forward towards enlightenment. And then his other teachings will plug into that. And the Buddha is saying this is the secure refuge because that's when the mind is fully protected. When the mind has eliminated all the pollutions, those 10 fetters, and is now fully practicing the teachings as an enlightened being, the mind is protected. Now it will never experience fear ever again or all of these other discontent feelings. You'll never experience the anger, the frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All these discontent feelings and others are completely eliminated. So that's the real protection that the Buddha is describing. It's not the mountains or you know the tree shrines, the forest and things like this. It's having confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community, because now you will have had to deeply understand the teachings and train the mind to be able to gain that confidence. And he says, that's the supreme refuge. And then as you go to that refuge of the Buddha, the teachings in the community for protection, you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. That's where all discontentedness is eliminated from the mind and the mind is experiencing enlightenment. 
What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on Facebook or YouTube. So we'll go ahead and move to the next chapter because there are no questions in Zoom either. Chapter 24. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Monks develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? He understands as it really is. This is discontentness. He understands as it really is. This is the cause of discontentness. He understands as it really is. This is the elimination of discontentness. He understands as it really is. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. Monks develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Therefore, monks and people should be made to understand. This is discontentness. An effort, an effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentness. Okay, thank you very much. So here the Buddha is describing the development of concentration because as you train the mind and eliminate more and more pollution of mind, you're going to experience this focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. This is because the pollution is being lifted out of the mind and being eliminated from the mind. So the Buddha is saying, monk who is concentrated understands as they really are, the Four Noble Truths. That's what he's going for here when he explains this aspect of his teachings. Because in order to get to that level of concentration and develop that deep focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and memory, an individual would need to know the Four Noble Truths without understanding the cause of discontentedness and the pollutions that are causing that, then you wouldn't be able to eliminate them and get to this concentration. Prior to experiencing more and more liberation of mind, the mind experiences this muddle-mindedness that the Buddha describes, where the mind is muddled. It's not quite clear. It's not quite crisp. But when you get the pollution out of the mind, now the mind comes into the light. It comes into this crispness where you get the clear comprehension. You get the concentration, the focus, and clarity. So here he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths in both of these paragraphs, explaining that this is how you develop concentration is first start with the Four Noble Truths. And then there's other aspects of his teachings where he teaches how to develop concentration with things like breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing singleness of mind. You would even need to practice generosity to train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So by practicing these teachings and others, then the mind eliminates this pollution and it becomes more and more concentrated. But it all starts with making an effort to understand this is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. And this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 25. Gradual progress in these teachings and discipline. It's possible, Brian, to describe gradual training gradual practice and gradual progress in these teachings and discipline. Just as Brahmin, when a clever host trainer obtains a fine through bread cold, he first makes him get used to wearing a bit 
and afterwards trains him further. So when the Tathagata obtains a person to be tamed, he first guides him thus. Come on, be virtuous, practice moral conduct, restraint with the restraint of the guidelines of these teachings. Be perfect in conduct and determination, and seeing misery in the slightest fall, train by undertaking the training precepts. When Brahmin, the monk, is virtuous, practicing moral conduct and seeing misery in the slightest fall, trains by undertaking the training precepts, precepts then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, guard the doors of your sense bases. On seeing a form with the eye not grasping at its signs and features, since if you were to leave the eye unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of craving and displeasure might invade you. Practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye sense base. Undertake the restraint of the eye sense base. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind are explained in the same repetitive formulas. When Brahmin, the monk, guards the door of his sense bases, then the, then the, the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, be moderate in eating, reflecting wisely. You should take food neither for amusement nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness but only for the endurance and continuance of this body, for ending discomfort and for assisting the holy life considering. Thus I shall terminate old feelings without entertaining new feelings, and I shall be healthy and blameless and shall live in comfort. When Brahmin the monk is moderating in eating, then the Tathagata guides him further. Come monk, be, be devoted to wakefulness. During the day, while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. In the first watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. In the middle watch of the night, you should lie down on the right side in the lion's pose, with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and fully aware after noting in your mind the time for rising. After rising in the third watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. When Brahmin, the monk is devoted to awfulness, then the, the Tathagata guides him further. Come monk, be possessed of mindfulness and full awareness. Act in full awareness when going forward and returning act in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away act in full awareness when flexing and extending your limbs act in full awareness when wearing your robes and carrying your outer robe and bow act in full awareness when eating drinking consuming food and tasting act in full awareness when defecating and urinating act in full awareness when walking standing sitting falling asleep waking up talking and keeping silent when brahmin the monk possesses mindfulness and full awareness 
Then the Tassagata guides him further. Come on, make use of a secluded resting place, the forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. He makes use of a sec he makes use of a secluded resting place, the forest the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. On returning from his arms round, gathering food after his meal, he sits down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, setting his body erect and establishing mindfulness before him, abandoning sensual desires for the world. He resides with a mind free from sensual desires. He purifies his mind from sensual desires. Abandoning ill will and hatred, he resides with mind free from ill will, compassionate for the well compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. He purifies his mind from ill will and hatred. Abandoning Complacency, he resides free from complacency, deeply understand of the light, mindful and fully aware, he purifies his mind from complacency. Abandoning restlessness and worry, he resides unagitated with a mind inwardly. Peaceful, he purifies his mind from restlessness and worry. Abandoning doubt, he resides having gone beyond doubt and confused about wholesome states with confidence. He purifies his mind from doubt. Having thus abandoned these five hindrances, imperfections of the mind that weak in wisdom, quite distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind he enters and resides in the second jhana which is without thinking and pondering based in concentration filled with excitement and joy and with the fading away of excitement remaining impure imperturbable unable to be upset or excited calm serene Mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana and having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is my instruction, Brahmi, to those monks who are in the higher training, whose minds have not yet attained the goal, who reside aspiring to the supreme security from bondage, enlightenment. But these things conduce us to, be, to, to a peaceful residing here and now, and to mindfulness and full awareness for those monks who are arahants with stains destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of existence, 
and are completely liberated through final knowledge, wisdom. All right, thank you. So this is a pretty long discourse here, so I'm going to just touch on a few of the things in the discourse, and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys have, because remember, you can read these chapters beforehand, and it's not just the words of the Buddha that you have here, it's the reference to be able to go back to the original Pali, as well as the reflections that I provide that help you to better understand each chapter. So I'm just gonna touch on a few things, and then open up to any questions that you guys have. The first thing to look at is understanding that to get to enlightenment, it's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. Oftentimes people have the misunderstanding that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and instantly got to enlightenment. This is actually not true. This isn't how enlightenment works. And he talks about this at multiple points in his teachings. At one point, even saying very clearly that it's not instantaneous. It's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that leads to your enlightenment. And you know that this is true because everything you've ever experienced in life has been gradual. Whether it's learning English or learning any other skill that you might perform for work or for your job. It's always gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So the enlightenment in this path to enlightenment is exactly the same way. It's gonna be this gradual progression of training the mind and transforming the mind to this enlightened mental state. Then the Buddha draws this comparison between training a horse and training a human being. Because many of the people that were learning with the Buddha were very familiar with farming and farm life. So often in his teachings, he will use analogies and similes that are related to nature or to farm life. Because 2,500 years ago, there were lots of farms and people understood this. So people would understand about training a horse. And what he's explaining here is that just like with a horse, there's this kind of gradual wearing of the bit, which is the piece of metal that goes in the horse's mouth so that you can guide the horse. He's saying, okay, just like you kind of first help the horse get familiar with this bit in the mouth, he does the same thing. He has this kind of first aspect of training, and then he has a second aspect of training and a third aspect, and he progresses through explaining all these different aspects of his training. So the first part that he describes is that he teaches this virtuous moral conduct. Well, the very first thing that the Buddha talks about having taught, which is in the previous chapters, is impermanence and the Four Noble Truths. Those need to be learned first. So you're learning the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths is where individual starts and even understanding the Eightfold Path because the Buddha describes the moral conduct in the Eightfold Path. So once an individual has that as a foundation, then he's going to encourage them to practice moral conduct because the moral conduct of right speech, right action, and right livelihood is helping you to clean up your decisions about how you conduct yourself in the world. As long as you're causing harm through your moral conduct of your speech, your actions, and your livelihood, that harm is going to come back to you. So it's going to be very challenging for you to have a peaceful and joyful mind if you're harsh, aggressive, and hostile towards people through your moral conduct then people are going to be harsh, aggressive, and hostile back to you. So by training your mind to practice the wholesome and virtuous moral conduct, you'll be able to then significantly reduce and ultimately eliminate the harm that you're causing in the world. So therefore, less and less harm will be coming back to you. And restraining the mind through understanding this moral conduct and then practicing it, seeing the slightest fault in any of the aspects of the moral conduct that you might end up 
not practicing because each time you practice in a slightly unwise way, that's going to produce unwholesome results. But when you dial in your practice more and more closely to the Eightfold Path and you're practicing the wholesome moral conduct with wise decision-making, you'll experience the wholesome results of having practiced that moral conduct. And then the Buddha goes on to explain other aspects like central desire, eating in moderation, and things like this, being devoted to wakefulness, practicing mindfulness, and so forth. Eventually, he gets here where he talks about the five hindrances. These are the five hindrances to enlightenment. This is central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry, and doubt. Central desire is where the mind is longing and yearning and craving through the six sense bases, wanting agreeable contact so that you can have pleasant feelings. If you see things through the eyes that is agreeable to you, then you will get pleasant feelings in the unenlightened state. Or if you hear certain things that are agreeable, or you smell, or you taste, or you have bodily contact or the mind itself, experiencing contact through any of these six sense spaces with agreeable contact, because there's craving in the mind, the mind only has certain things that it finds as agreeable. So therefore, if it's longing and yearning for agreeable contact, it can only experience pleasant feelings when it gets the objects of its affection. Then, when it experiences this disagreeable contact, because it craves one particular thing, there's other things in the mind that are disagreeable to it. So therefore, it's going to experience painful feelings when it has disagreeable contact. But when you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, no longer longing and yearning for certain things, then you can be peaceful and joyful all the time because there's nothing that the mind wants versus another thing. As long as there's longing and yearning in the mind, it's going to only want certain things. And then when it doesn't get those, it's going to experience the painful feelings. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you're eliminating sensual desire. And then if the mind doesn't get the objects of its affection that it's chasing after with sensual desire, it will oftentimes experience ill will. This is where the anger, hatred, and ill will arises in the mind, and now an individual might be bitter and harsh or aggressive through their moral conduct. And then oftentimes in the unenlightened state, we push people or situations away thinking that this is going to solve the problem, when in reality, the real problem is the central desire in this ill will. These are pollutions of mind that need to be uprooted. So we eliminate the central desire with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. This is a generalized training. And then there's other specialized things we can do with certain cravings, desires, attachments. And then we use loving kindness meditation to break up the ill will and eliminate that from the mind. And then we practice loving kindness through our intention, speech, and actions in daily life. Gradually, slowly, but surely, you transform the mind away from central desire and ill will. And now you arise the wholesome qualities that are the exact opposites of these, which are generosity and loving kindness. And in order to accomplish that, you need to eliminate complacency. Complacency is where the mind has a lack of motivation or it's dull or lethargic or uninterested in doing something. It's unmotivated. It doesn't have a willingness to take initiative and actually do something. The mind can be dull or lethargic or lazy. It doesn't want to come to learn these teachings. It doesn't want to come to class, perhaps. It doesn't want to meditate. It's not interested at all to pick up a book and read or ask questions 
emotions or things like this. The mind just wants to sit back and kind of hide in the shadows and, and kind of be lazy and lethargic. So that's not going to produce enlightenment because the mind isn't active and willing to apply effort to arise the initiative and motivation and enthusiasm that it needs to progress on the path. But also if the mind is craving and longing and yearning and chasing after things and chasing after enlightenment, that's not going to work either. So you find this middle way where you set enlightenment as a goal, objective, or an interest, and you develop this energy, this enlightenment factor of energy, where you have motivation and encouragement towards the progression of your practice and developing your life practice to get closer and closer to enlightenment. So you need to arise this in the mind. And then there's this restlessness or worry. We might refer to this as anxiety today, where the mind is overactive and it's constantly obsessed about something. And it's just not content in the present moment. It's just having restlessness and worry. It's agitated. But you can get to the point where you arise equanimity, where there's calmness, composure. There's this mental temperament that is even, even in difficult situations. So by getting the mind to the point where it's no longer overactive and restless and you know worried, then the mind can be calm and content. And if there's doubt, this is the last hindrance of the five hindrances. Doubt is when you have doubt about the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, or your own ability to attain enlightenment. Whenever there's doubt that comes into the mind about any of these five things, then the mind's going to have difficulties. It's not going to be able to progress to enlightenment. So the way that you transform this is by arising confidence that you investigate and examine the teachings of the Buddha. You don't believe them, but instead you reflect on his teachings to independently verify them. Then you practice them through your meditation and other aspects of the Eightfold Path. And as you're practicing, you see the gradual transitioning of the mind and the transformation of the mind where it now becomes more focused, concentrated, clarity of mind, deep memory. You start having this peacefulness, this calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy that's arising in the mind. And typically when someone first comes to the path to enlightenment, they do have some doubt. So you don't eliminate and abandon this doubt through blind belief or blind faith. Instead, you're investigating the teachings. And this doubt that typically is in the mind when somebody's first starting the path, and even after you get going for a few years, I've seen people that have studied this path for you know multiple years and still end up having doubt. Even after three, four, five years, they still get to the point where they end up having doubt because they just haven't put forth enough effort due to complacency and observing that the mind is actually improving. So this doubt that's in the mind when you're first starting, you can actually harness it because if the mind is having doubt, that can motivate an inquisitive mind, that can create an inquisitive mind where now you investigate the teachings. Whereas if you just have doubt and you turn away from the teachings, then yes, this is gonna be a hindrance to you. But the way that you transform it to beneficial is you harness this doubt and then train the mind to be inquisitive about the Buddhist teachings. And now you train in them through learning, reflecting, independently verifying and practicing, you can eliminate this doubt because you see the condition of the mind gradually improving. And these are called the five hindrances because they're the five hindrances to enlightenment. 
And the number one hindrance is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The Buddha doesn't list this as one of the five because it's in the fetters and it's well known through dependent origination and other teachings that this ignorance or the unknowing of true reality is the main thing that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. It just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. And one of the challenges is, is that there's that ego in there. There's that conceit in there in the unenlightened mind. And oftentimes the mind has so much arrogance and pride or judging others or this measuring and comparing, thinking that it's above others, that it just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. So by training the mind to not believe the teachings and investigating them, then you can transform that ignorance into wisdom. And this is where the mind is gradually transformed because as you gain more and more wisdom about this path to enlightenment and how to train the mind, then you can eliminate craving and anger. But as long as ignorance is in the mind, you wouldn't be able to eliminate all of these other fetters because you don't even know that they exist. You don't know what they are. You can't see them arising. Oftentimes when people's sensual desire or ill will is arising, they can't actually see it for themselves. Or if they have a certain amount of ego or conceit, they can't see that when it's arising. And this is where a teacher becomes very beneficial is that a teacher can observe these things and you can have other members of your community observe this and you can get help with these kind of things. So the five hindrances are going to hinder someone from getting to enlightenment and that number one hindrance is the unknowing of true reality, the ignorance. But then as the mind is making its way to developing the Eightfold Path more and more closely and dialing that in with meditation and all the other factors of the Eightfold Path, the mind starts experiencing these jhanas. This is what the Buddha starts to explain here is these jhanas. The jhanas are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it reaches the first stage of enlightenment. Once the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment, it will no longer regress from there. It will only progress forward, ultimately getting to enlightenment either in this life or some subsequent life. But when the mind is in those jhanas, it's like the light bulb is flickering. From there, the mind can regress if you give up on your practice. The mind can actually regress. But if your mind gets into those jhanas and you experience the concentration and clarity, the qualities of mind that the Buddha is describing here, a certain amount of joy arises in the mind. The mind is imperturbable, where it's unable to be upset or excited. It's calm and serene. Once you get into those jhanas, if you stay focused on the fetters and eliminating the fetters, now the mind can get more stable into that first stage of enlightenment. So these jhanas are like the light bulb flickering. If you turn on a light switch and the light bulb flickers, flicker, 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 boom, and now it's on. The light being on all the time, this is enlightenment. But leading up to enlightenment, you might get a few minutes or a few hours or a few days, maybe even a week or so, where the mind is peaceful and content and joyful, and it's like the mind is completely fulfilled. But then, because there's still pollution in the mind, at some point, boom, the discontentedness comes into the mind. So the mind is not yet enlightened. But these jhanas, the mind can experience certain qualities of enlightenment, like getting glimpses of what enlightenment is like. And this is an indication to you that you're putting together all the other steps of the Eightfold Path. And now that you've got that well underway, it's time to start focusing on the four stages of enlightenment and eliminating the fetters so that you can actually move into the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. The 
Eightfold Path and all the other teachings of the Buddha are actually guiding you to eliminate the fetters. He's just not calling it out. So even something as simple as the five precepts, something like living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, that first precept where you're training the mind not to kill, this is helping you to eliminate the ill will. And then when you're training the mind to uh, not steal, have sexual misconduct, to lie or take substances that cause heedlessness, this is helping the mind to eliminate sensual desire or craving desire attachment. And then each aspect of the Eightfold Path and other teachings that he shares, it's helping you and guiding you to eliminate the individual fetters without you necessarily realizing that. And that's what's going to produce these qualities of the jhanas in the light bulb flickering. And now as you start seeing that, where the jhanas are starting to be experienced, now you can more directly target the fetters and start focusing on the actual fetters and eliminating those. That's where you would like to do that. And then having done that, the Buddha talks about an individual who hasn't yet attained the goal of enlightenment. This is how he's gonna train them. That these things that he's explaining actually leads to the destruction of the taints. By following this sequential practice that the Buddha is describing and how you gradually build up your practice, starting with the very beginning of what he describes as practicing moral conduct and then progressing from there, gradually, slowly but surely, you're working to eliminate the taints or the fetters or the pollutions or the defilements of the mind so that then you can get to this fourth stage of enlightenment that we call arahant. This is where the mind is actually enlightened. In the first, second, and third stages, the mind is not yet enlightened yet. But in the fourth stage, the mind is actually enlightened, and we call that an arahant. And this person has laid down the burden. Laying down the burden is laying down craving, desire, attachment. This is a real burden to carry around. So if you go out into the world, and you're working, or you're doing certain things, and you come home and you're just completely exhausted, this is because the mind is constantly craving. It takes a lot of effort and energy for the mind to constantly be craving throughout your day. So when you lay down this burden of craving, then the mind won't experience anger. Then the mind has arisen this wisdom of actually how to do that. And now the mind can be tranquil and the body can be tranquil. And you've reached the true goal of enlightenment because you've destroyed the fetters. You've destroyed the 10 fetters. And now the mind is completely liberated to final knowledge. The liberation means freedom from strong feelings, freedom from those discontent feelings. What final knowledge is, is in order to get to enlightenment, which if someone has attained final knowledge, they are enlightened. Final knowledge is having full understanding of the path to enlightenment. An individual who's fully understood all the teachings that the Buddha shares and trained the mind to get to this enlightened mental state, they've attained final knowledge because they now know this path inside out, backwards, forwards, and left and right. As you're developing your practice and moving closer to enlightenment, there can be struggles and difficulties along the way. Sure, there's going to be plenty of enjoyment and certain things that you're going to enjoy. You're going to enjoy life a whole lot. But there's going to be certain challenges that you experience along the way because the mind's not used to doing this. It wants to hold on. It wants to be complacent. It wants to hold on to that central desire, the ill will, the complacency, the restlessness and worry, the doubt. It isn't interested in doing the work. And it can sometimes struggle and it can be a challenge. 
But if you don't shrink back from the struggle, if you stay dedicated and committed, you stay diligent to your practice, you can gradually develop this wisdom of how to train the mind and the mind becomes more and more liberated. And you can see the truth for yourself that there's this gradual diminishing of the discontentedness as you're progressing closer and closer to enlightenment. And once you attain enlightenment, the Buddha calls this liberation through final knowledge because you now know the path inside and out backwards and forwards it's no longer a struggle for you you're now practicing these teachings so effortlessly you've laid down the burden the mind is tranquil and peaceful and joyful the body is also tranquil you're now operating through these teachings all the time effortlessly it's like as if you're upgrading your computer system if you're going from an old operating system on your computer to a new operating system as you make that upgrade it's going to be a challenge it's going to be a struggle you're going to be looking for certain things on your computer that you don't know how to accomplish the things that you used to do in life you didn't necessarily know how to accomplish those in the new computer system because the computer system has moved things around and it's got a new layout. Well, the same thing is you're upgrading your mind to this new operating system of the path to enlightenment. You're going to have some struggles and challenges along the way, but ultimately when you get on that new operating system of the computer, you start seeing how it's so much easier, it's so much more straightforward, and then eventually you get to the point where it's effortless for you to operate this operating system. And the path to enlightenment is the same way that ultimately you get to the point where it's effortless that you're practicing these teachings because you understand them. It's going to take you a while, but you've got help and you've got resources and you can gradually make your way. It's not hurry up and get to enlightenment. It's gradually train the mind, gradually practice and gradually progress. And you'll see this gradual progression as you go and getting to final knowledge. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I can answer those questions for you and give you the help that you need. I don't see any questions on Facebook or YouTube, and I don't see any in Zoom either. So we'll just go ahead and move to the next chapter, which is, this is a very long one that I wrote about, chapter 26. Simile. That's simile. Simile of a young infant. Suppose a young infant boy, unwise, lying on his back, were to put a stick or pebble in his mouth because of his nurse's lack of attention. His nurse would quickly attend to him and try to take it out. If she could not quickly take it out, she would press the boy's head with her left hand and hooking a finger of her right hand, she would take it out and even she would take it out even if she had to draw blood. For what reason? There would be some distress for the boy, this I don't deny. But the nurse has to do so for his good and welfare, out of compassion for him. However, when the boy has grown up and has enough sense, the nurse would be unconcerned about him, thinking the boy can now look after himself, he won't be careless. So too, so long as a monk is still not accomplished in confidence, in cultivating wholesome qualities, in a sense of moral wrongdoing, in cultivating wholesome qualities, in moral concern, in cultivating wholesome qualities, in energy, in cultivating wholesome qualities, and in wisdom, in cultivating wholesome qualities, I must still look after him. 
but when that monk is accomplished in confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities, in a sense of moral wrongdoing, in cultivating wholesome qualities, in moral concern, in cultivating wholesome qualities, in energy, in cultivating wholesome qualities, and in wisdom, in cultivating wholesome qualities, then I am concerned about him thinking, the monk can now look after himself, he won't be careless. All right. Thank you, Kaudon. So here the Buddha is describing this analogy or this simile between a young infant and his students. When a young infant is born, it lacks wisdom. It doesn't understand certain aspects of life and it might put certain things in its mouth. And there, when the baby is very new, if it puts something in its mouth, he's saying that the nurse would essentially pull this thing out of the mouth even if they had to draw blood because they need to help this young infant. And then as this baby grows and it becomes, you know, maybe 12 years old, you know, 20 years old, 25 years old, of course, this being now understands not to put things into its mouth and the uh, nurse doesn't have to look after this child as much because it understands not to put things in its mouth. The Buddha explains this in relationship to his students that as long as a student does not have confidence of producing and cultivating wholesome qualities, a sense of moral wrongdoing, moral concern, energy, or wisdom, then he must look after them, right? But then once they develop these qualities, he's no longer concerned about them. He's unconcerned because they've now have the qualities of mind that they need in order to practice in such a way that the Buddha can basically be more hands-off and not as involved because they won't be careless about the way that they function in the world. So let's understand what each one of these qualities are. The confidence, whenever you see the Buddha talking about confidence, this is confidence in him, his teachings, and the community that you're part of. Because if you don't have the confidence in these three things, then there's doubt. And as long as there's doubt, you're not going to be actively pursuing and progressing towards enlightenment. So if you would like to expand that to confidence in your teacher and confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment, this is very wise. Because you might have confidence in the Buddha, you might have confidence in his teachings and confidence in the community, but the Buddha is no longer here. So if you lack confidence in your actual teacher who's here today or your own ability to attain enlightenment, if you have doubt about these things, any of these five, then you're not going to be able to cultivate these wholesome qualities and move closer to enlightenment. And then the Buddha talks about this moral wrongdoing. What moral wrongdoing is, is knowing what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Essentially what's wrong from right or right from wrong. If you don't understand what's wholesome and unwholesome, then you're not going to be able to make wise decisions about how to conduct yourself in the world. So part of what you're learning on this path is what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So you learn things like mindfulness, concentration, being humble, generosity, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, qualities of mind like this and others are wholesome. And then you learn about the unwholesome qualities, things like conceit or arrogance, pride, measuring and comparing, judging others, things like this. These are all unwholesome. And as long as your mind doesn't understand the wholesome from unwholesome, and there's a lot of others besides these, then you're going to continue to make unwise decisions. Once you understand 
the moral wrongdoing of what's wholesome and unwholesome, then you start to develop this moral concern where you're concerned and you're not interested in doing unwholesome things because you know that doing unwholesome things would be unwise because it's just going to lead to unwholesome results. So you find yourself with moral concern being more and more interested in making wise decisions to produce wholesome outcomes. And you have that moral wrongdoing of knowing what's wholesome and unwholesome. Then you'll need to arise this energy, this motivation, this enthusiasm, where the mind is not complacent, where you have a willingness to do something that you apply initiative because it requires motivation and enthusiasm. It requires initiative, a willingness to do something, to meditate on a consistent basis, to practice generosity on a consistent basis, to come to classes on a consistent basis, to read books on a consistent basis, all of these things that you need, reaching out to your teacher for help and guidance. There's multiple things things that you'll need to do in order to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. So you'll need this enlightenment factor of energy in order to help you get to the point where you're able to practice the teachings and you're not just complacent or lethargic or dull or lacking motivation. Then the Buddha finally talks about wisdom. This is the wholesome quality of all wholesome qualities because it's wisdom that really sets everything into motion. Without learning the teachings, reflecting on them to independently verify them and practicing them, you wouldn't be able to actually get to wisdom. So that's why I teach not to believe anything that I share. You should never believe anything that I share, anything that you see me write about in books, anything that I teach you. You shouldn't believe any of this stuff. Instead, you learn it, you reflect on it, and you practice it. And that's what actually leads to the cultivation of wisdom and leads to enlightenment. Because you need the wisdom of how to eliminate something like craving and anger. You need the wisdom of how to cultivate confidence. You need the wisdom of how to cultivate moral wrongdoing and moral concern and how to develop this energy in the mind, how to practice meditation and all these other teachings like the Eightfold Path and others. So it's the wisdom that's allowing you to develop all the different facets of the path. And the Buddha is explaining that once someone has confidence, moral wrongdoing, moral concern, energy, and wisdom, then he's not concerned with them because they have the basic faculties that they need in order to progress closer and closer to enlightenment. And he knows that this individual who's developed that won't be careless. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook or YouTube. I don't see any in Zoom is either. So let's go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 27. Okay. Killing in the perfectly enlightened one's teachings. Kissy, you are well known to be a horse trainer. Just how do you guide the horse to be tamed? Venerable sir, I guide one kind of horse gently, another kind sternly, and still another kind both gently and sternly. But Kissy, if a horse to be tamed by you won't submit to guidance by any of these methods, how do you deal with him? Venerable sir, if a horse to be tamed by my by me won't submit to guidance by any of these methods, then I kill him. For what reason? So that there will be no disgrace to my teaching organization. But venerable sir, the perfectly enlightened one is the unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed. Guess how does the perfectly enlightened one guide a person to be tamed? 
Eyegide one kind of person gently, another kind sternly, and still another kind both gently and sternly. This kissing is a gentle method, such as bodily wholesome conduct, such as the result of bodily wholesome conduct, such as verbal wholesome conduct, such as the result of verbal wholesome conduct, such as mental wholesome conduct, such as the result of mental wholesome conduct, such are the heavenly beings, such human beings. This is the stern method, such as bodily misconduct, such as the result of bodily misconduct, such as verbal misconduct, such as the result of verbal misconduct, such as mental misconduct, such as the result of mental misconduct, such as health, such as the animal realm, such as the realm of afflicted spirits. This is the gentle and stern method. Such is bodily wholesome conduct, such the result of bodily wholesome conduct, such is bodily misconduct, such the result of bodily misconduct, such is verbal wholesome conduct, such the result of verbal wholesome conduct, such is verbal misconduct, such the result of verbal misconduct, such is mental wholesome conduct, such is the result of mental wholesome conduct. Such is mental misconduct, such is the result of mental misconduct. Such are the heavenly beings, such are human beings, such is hell, such is the animal realm, such is the realm of afflicted spirits. But venerable sir, if a person to be tamed by you won't submit to guidance by any of these methods, how does the perfectly enlightened one deal with him? If a person to be tamed by me won't submit to guidance by any of these methods, then I kill him. But venerable sir, it isn't allowable for the perfectly enlightened one to destroy life. Yet he says, then I kill him. It's true, Kesi, that it isn't allowable for the Tathagata to destroy life. However, when a person to be tamed won't submit to guidance by the gentle method, the stern method or the method that is both gentle and stern, then the Tathagata thinks he should not be spoken to and instructed. And his wise fellow monks too think he should not think he should not be spoken to and instructed. For this case is killing in the noble one's teachings, the Tathagata thinks one should not be spoken to and instructed. And once wise fellow monk and once wise fellow monks to think one should not be spoken to and instructed. All right, thank you. This is a teaching where the Buddha is explaining how he guides his students and once again connecting it to a horse trainer because this horse trainer is saying that he has a gentle method, a stern method, and a gentle in stern method. And if his horse doesn't submit to this training and to be tamed, then he kills the horse because he's not interested in a poor reputation coming to his organization of teaching and guiding horses because then his reputation will be damaged and he won't be able to make an income. So the Buddha explains that he actually has these same exact methods as well that he has this gentle method of explaining what is wholesome and then explaining the results of being unwholesome. So he explains the bodily, verbal, and mental conduct and the results of that conduct. This is the gentle method. So you can just see the truth for yourself very easily. Then he talks about this stern method where he also explains 
the misconduct and the result of this misconduct, but then he also connects it to the rebirth in the lower realms of hell, animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits. Then he talks about the gentle and stern method, where he combines these two things together, where he's explaining the wholesome conduct and the result of this wholesome conduct, as well as the misconduct. But then he also uses and explains rebirth into the lower realms as part of what will be the result if one doesn't practice in the proper way. And then this horse trainer asks the Buddha, well, what do you do if they don't follow your guidance? And the Buddha says, well, I kill them. Killing to the Buddha is to no longer teach a individual because living during the lifetime of a Buddha is the best absolute time to live and be alive because you have the best chance to get to enlightenment because a Buddha is gonna have deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment. And this would be your best time to learn directly from an actual Buddha. And to not have that opportunity and for someone to not be taught by the Buddha, then that person is essentially dead to the Buddha, right? It's not in an angered way, it's not in a resentful way, he's not pushing them away, but he's just choosing not to speak to the person and not teaching them because a Buddha has a limited amount of time that they need to help as many people as possible get to enlightenment. And a Buddha is only interested in spending time with those people who are deeply committed to understanding his teachings and then getting to enlightenment because that's going to ensure the longevity of their teachings and ensure they actually get to the hearts and the minds of individuals who are actually going to do something with those teachings and then actually practice them in training their mind and then continue to share the teachings long after a Buddha has actually died. So if there's somebody who's not taking the guidance and actually doing something with it, it's really just a waste of time for a Buddha to teach that individual. So the Buddha is saying, okay, if somebody's not responding to my guidance, I just stop talking to them and stop guiding them. That way he'll be able to spend time focused on the individuals that are truly interested in learning and getting to enlightenment and progressing further. He can actually invest time, effort, energy, and resources into the people that are actually willing to do the work and interested to do the work. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. So let's go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 28. Kaldon, would you still like to read or you need a break? No, it's fine. Okay. You're doing wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. The Tathagata is the one who shows the way. The Brahmin Ganaka Mogalana asked the perfectly enlightened one. When Master Gautama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, do they all attain Nibbana enlightenment, the ultimate goal, or do some not attain it? When Brahmin, they are thus advised and instructed by me, some of my disciples attain Nibbana, enlightenment, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. Master Gautama, since Nibbana, enlightenment, exists, and the path leading to Nibbana exists, and Master Gautama is present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why, when Master Gautama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. As to that, Brahmin, I will ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Brahmin? Are you familiar with the road leading to Rajagaha? Yes, Master Gautama. I am familiar with the road leading 
to Raja Gaha. What do you think, Brahmin? Suppose a man came who wanted to go to Raja Gaha and he approached you and said, Venerable sir, I want to go to Raja Gaha, show me the road to Raja Gaha. Then you told him, Now, good man, this road goes to Raja Gaha, follow it for a while and you will see a certain village. Do a little further and you will see a certain town. Go a little further and you will see Raja Gaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows and ponds. Then having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would take a wrong road and would go to the west. Then a second man came who wanted to go to Raja Gaha and he approached you and said, Venerable sir, I want to go to Raja Gaha. Then you told him, now good man, this road goes to Raja Gaha. Follow it for a while and you will see a certain village. Go a little further and you will see a certain town. Go a little further and you will see Raja Gaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would arrive safely, he would arrive safely in Raja Gaha. Now, Brahmin, since Rajagaha exists and the path leading to Rajagaha exists and you are present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why when those men have been thus advised and instructed by you, one man takes a wrong road and goes to the west and one arrives safely in Rajagaha? What can I do about this master? What can I do about that, Master Gautama? I am one who shows the way. So too, Brahmin, Nibbana enlightenment exists and the path leading to Nibbana exists and I am present as the guide. Yet, when my disciples have been thus advised and instructed by me, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. What can I do about that, Brahmin? The Tathagata is one who shows the way. Thank you. All right. So this chapter here, the Buddha is asked first, do your disciples all get to enlightenment or do some not attain it? And the Buddha says, some attain it and some don't. And then this Brahmin says, well, why is that? You know, you're the one who's guiding people to enlightenment. Shouldn't they all essentially get to enlightenment? You know, that's what he, he's sharing. And the Buddha asks the question back and kind of guides them through and helps them learn based on something that they already know about giving directions to a certain town that you can give directions to 10, 20, 50 different people. And not all of those people are going to actually get to the actual town. You're just pointing the way to get to the actual town. And the Buddha describes this the same way as what he's doing in order to point the way to enlightenment. And not everybody is going to be able to be as diligent, determined, and dedicated to actually getting to enlightenment. So not all the students who study with the Buddha are actually going to get to enlightenment. It depends on the level of pollution in their mind when they come to the path. It depends on their determination and diligence when they are on the path. And it depends how committed they are to actually developing their practice practice and practicing as the Buddha is actually explaining. So not everybody is going to get to enlightenment. 
that studies with a Buddha. But surely there'll be countless people that do get to enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha because their wisdom is so deep and so profound. So the Buddha is helping this Brahmin to understand the answer that the Buddha is going to deliver by asking the Brahmin questions about something he already knows because he already knows the answer that the Buddha is going to explain. But rather than just saying, I'm the one who points the way, he's actually walking him through a scenario so that this Brahmin can see for himself the truth. Because oftentimes the unenlightened mind, it's not willing to see the truth. Even if a teacher just tells you the truth, you might struggle to actually be able to see that truth. So oftentimes a teacher will guide a student to the truth by asking them questions. And this is a very skillful way to guide an unenlightened mind to seeing the truth. Because when you're teaching yourself, through a rising wisdom that you currently have about a certain topic, then you're more likely to heave that advice and understand that advice. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Okay, Cardon, you have a question? You can go ahead. I get uh, sometimes in, during the day, I get the buzz and whistle in my head. I want to know about that. Okay, so as somebody is making their way to enlightenment and they're eliminating pollution of the mind, you can experience this uh, ringing in the ears. This is very common and it's not permanent. It comes and goes, but usually when it's quite quiet or you're meditating, it's a lot more profound and it's a lot stronger. The Buddha talks about this during his teachings and people who are either close to enlightenment or enlightened may experience this. The Buddha talks about it as basically sounds of the heavenly realm. And as the mind is becoming more and more enlightened, you're becoming more and more wholesome. The mind's becoming more and more pure. So you're hearing this frequency that not everybody actually hears. Some people will go off to the doctor thinking that they have some kind of illness or some kind of problem with their body, but it's actually not an actual problem. It's actually indication that the mind is being trained and the pollution is coming out of the mind and now there's this ringing. But it's not real strong. It can be strong at different times, but it's not typically very strong. It's very subtle, very light. And then the, the more that you train your mind, you'll get more and more accustomed to it and you won't hear it all the time. Oftentimes it's only when you're meditating or when things are very still or very quiet and there's not much ambient sound around, you'll be able to hear this light little ringing in the ears. So this is an indication that things are going well if you're starting to hear that. Okay. Looks like we don't have questions on YouTube and we don't have any on Facebook. There's people that are saying hi, so hi to all of you guys out there in Facebook land and other parts of the internet. So let's go ahead and move to the next chapter which is chapter 29. The simile of the great log. Do you see monks that great log being carried along by the current of the river Ganges? Yes, venerable sir. If monks, that log does not veer towards the near shore, does not veer towards the far shore, does not sink in midstream, does not get cast up on high ground, does not get caught by human beings, does not get caught by non-human beings, does not get caught in whirlpool, and does not become inwardly rotten. It will slant slow and incline towards the ocean. For what reason? Because the current of the river again slants, slopes and inclines towards the ocean. So two monks 
If you do not wait towards the near shore, do not wait towards the far shore, do not sink in midstream, do not get cast up on high ground, do not get caught by human beings, do not get caught by non-human beings, do not get caught in a whirlpool, and do not become inwardly rotten, you will slant, slope, and incline towards Nibbana enlightenment. For what reason? Because right view slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana enlightenment. When this was said, a certain monk asked, the perfectly enlightened one, what venerable sir is the near shore? What is the far shore? What is sinking? What is sinking in midstream? What is getting cast up on high ground? What is getting caught by human beings? What is getting caught by non-human beings? What is getting caught in a whirlpool? What is inward rottenness? The near shore monk. This is a this is a designation. This is a designation for the six internal sense stages. The far shore. This is a designation for the six external sense bases. Sinking in midstream. This is a designation for excitement and desire. Getting cast up on high ground. This is a designation for the concise I am. And what monk is getting caught by human beings? Here, here someone lives in association with household practitioners. He rejoices with them and sorrows with them. He is happy when they are happy and sad when they are sad. And he, and he involves himself in their affairs and duties. This is called getting caught by human beings. And what monks, and what monk is getting caught by non-human beings? Yes, someone lives the holy life with the aspiration to be reborn into a certain order of heavenly beings. Thinking by this virtue or vow or obscurity or holy life, I will become a heavenly being or one among the heavenly beings. This is called getting caught by non-human beings. Getting caught in a whirlpool, this month is a designation for the five forms of sensual pleasure. And what month is inward rottenness? Here someone is immoral, one of unwholesome character, of impure and suspect behavior, secretive in his acts, no ascetic soul claiming to be one, not a celibate soul claiming to be one, inwardly rotten, corrupt, Wicked. This is called inward rottenness. All right. Thank you, Kaudon. This is a pretty detailed simile, which I've gone through in other Pali Canon and English study groups. It's quite clear to me, but I would like to give you guys an opportunity to ask any questions that you guys might have about any of the individual aspects that the Buddha is explaining here. If you've read this before class, then you've read the actual words of the Buddha and you've read my reflections as well, and you might have some questions. So you're welcome to ask those questions. I'm going to just accept any questions that you have rather than go through this point by point. So are there any questions? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions related to this chapter. I see someone who's asking some questions. I'll answer, I'll answer those after class. If there's any questions, you guys can put those into the comment section or you can raise your hand in Zoom and I'll call on you to be sure you get your questions asked. 
I don't see any questions related to this chapter. So I guess we'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is the last one for today, chapter 30. You can go ahead and read that one, Caldon, if you like. Monks, in the past, a tortoise was searching for food along the bank of a river one evening. On that same evening, a jackal was also searching for food along the bank of that same river. When the tortoise saw the jackal in the distance searching for food, it drew its limbs and neck inside its shell and passed the time keeping still and silent. The jackal had also seen the tortoise in the distance searching for food. So he approached and waited close by thinking, when this tortoise extends one or another of its limbs or its neck, I will grab it right on the spot, pull it out and eat it. But because the tortoise didn't, did not extend any of its limbs or its neck, the jackal, failing to gain access to it, lost interest in it and departed. So two monks, Mara, the evil one, is constantly and continually waiting close by you, thinking perhaps I will gain access to him through the eye or through the ear or through the nose or through the tongue or through the body or through the mind. Therefore, monks reside guarding the doors of the six sense bases, having seen a form with the eye, having heard a sound with the ear, having smelled an odor with the nose, having tasted a flavor with the tongue, having touched a physical object with the body, having recognized a mental object with the mind, do not grasp its signs and features. Since if you leave the eyes, if you leave the eye sense based unguarded, the ear sense based unguarded, the nose sense based unguarded, the tongue based, the, the tongue sense based unguarded, the body sense based unguarded, the mind sense based unguarded, evil unwholesome states of craving and displeasure might invade you. Practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye sense based. The ear sense based, the nose sense based, the tongue sense based, the body sense based, the mind sense based. Undertake the restraint of the eye sense based, the ear sense based, the nose sense based, the tongue sense based, the body sense based, and the mind sense based. When monks, you recite guarding the doors of the six sense bases, Mara the evil one, failing to gain access to you, will lose interest in you and devoured, just as the jackal departed from the tortoise. Drawing in the mind's thoughts, as a tortoise draws its limbs into its shell, independent, not harassing others, fully extinguished. A monk would not blame anyone. All right. Thank you so much, Kaudon. That was really kind of you to read all those chapters. So here, chapter... Yes, you're welcome. Here, chapter 30, the simile of the tortoise. The Buddha is using the analogy of a tortoise, which has six individual limbs. It has its head, it has its two legs, and has a tail. That using this story of the tortoise to represent the 
sense bases. And then the jackal is representing Mara, this evil, unwholesome being that is looking to cause calamity in the world. Some traditions might refer to this as the devil or Satan. This is a real being that actually exists and is attempting to motivate unwholesome things in the world. It's ultimately your decision of what actually occurs in your own life, but this being is going to constantly be attempting to influence you and gain access to you through these sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the bodily contact in the mind. Because if you can be drawn into a certain central desire through one of these sense bases, then it's going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment and you will cause unwholesome results because you're making unwise decisions as the mind is longing and yearning and craving through these sense bases. So just like the tortoise saw the jackal and it pulled in its limbs and just waited patiently and eventually the jackal lost interest and left, the Buddha is saying the same thing, that is if you draw in your six sense bases and keep them guarded, Mara will lose interest in you and will go on. And then you don't need to face that unwholesome influence from Mara. So the way that this might look in daily life is say that you're working on eliminating a craving for shopping and you know that you constantly shop, maybe you're in debt, maybe every time you go to the mall you keep buying things and the mind is having difficulties controlling this. And maybe you get on this path to enlightenment, you're starting to train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity along with other steps on the Eightfold Path. And now, rather than choosing to go to the mall where you're putting your mind in a situation where it could potentially long and yearn and actually buy something, maybe instead you choose to stay home and read a book or you go for a walk or you go for a bike ride or you go over a friend's house or something like this. This is a way that you can restrain the mind and pull it back. And then you can be guarding the mind. Another example is if you are trying to eliminate the craving and yearning and longing for alcohol or drugs, and you know there's certain friends that you spend time with in the past doing this, certain bars that you would go to, so it would be unwise for you to walk past those bars or go get involved with those friends and other things because there's a tendency for the mind to be influenced and lean towards taking intoxicants and substances that cause heedlessness. So you can guard the mind in these situations. Another example might be if you are trying to reduce or eliminate your sexual cravings and you're surfing Facebook or you're searching on other social media and you see a certain image of an individual that uh, looks so handsome or looks so beautiful, rather than clicking on that image and following it and getting all enamored with whatever images that you're seeing of this beautiful human being or this handsome human being, instead just keep scrolling and keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Don't allow the mind to indulge in looking at images and pictures that are going to arise this sexual craving in the mind that might make you feel influenced to go out and actually have sexual contact with somebody other than your partner. So this would be unwise for you to do this and you would like to restrain the mind and be observant of the mind and not follow that trail of central desire as the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases. So this is like drawing in the limbs of the tortoise and the jackal loses interest and goes away. Mara does the same thing. The more you can restrain the mind and then guard the mind 
through guarding the six sense bases, now Mara will lose interest in you. And you'll also gradually eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments. But always keep in mind that this being Mara is there attempting to influence you, but it's ultimately your decision. So you'll be able to control your mind when you train your mind. If you're not training your mind, you wouldn't be able to control it. And Mara would be easily able to influence you. But still in that situation, it's your decisions. So what questions do you guys have on this? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions from any of those places. I will just um, close up class by letting you guys know that next class, we're gonna be in the next 10 chapters. So now we just covered chapters 21 through 30. The next class, we're gonna be in chapters 31 through 40. So if you'd like to read those ahead of time, that can really help you because here in class, we're only reading the words of the Buddha and I'm only teaching to a certain level of detail. But in those books, I've gone through in detail and written out a really detailed reflection of how to understand each individual chapter. So you're gonna gain so much more benefit by reading the entire chapter before and or after class. We're only reading the words of the Buddha in class. I'm only teaching to a certain level of detail, but in the book, I've gone through and explained it in a lot of detail, oftentimes including other teachings that you might need to be able to understand the current chapter that you're looking at. So by you doing some reading before and or after class, it'll really strengthen your understanding of each one of these chapters and thus help you better understand the path to enlightenment. Tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be teaching chapter one of volume one. This is where the book starts, essentially the preface and then chapter one, where I share the universal teachings of love, no harm, and good morals. This is where I'm going to help you see some connections between the various traditions that you might have been exposed to that led to you now deciding that you would like to practice the teachings of the Buddha on the path to enlightenment. This Wednesday, we're going to be in the second part of our four-part series of loving-kindness meditation. So you're welcome to watch either of these classes and participate live, or you can watch the replay because these are all recorded in Facebook, YouTube, and in our podcast. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining. I'd like to thank Dawn for reading. I think you did an excellent job. This is wonderful. Perhaps in the future, some others might be able to also help with reading because that'll allow us to have a more full class. And then if you guys are preparing ahead of time, you might come to class with a certain number of questions that will also help the discussion along. And you guys will get a lot more benefit out of the actual discussion and having a real study group where we're actually studying each individual chapter based on maybe clarifications that you guys need as part of your study. So thank you all. I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Sawadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.